Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Eric, executive coach and founder of Full Cycle Executive Coaching. And they discuss Eric's CTO maturity model, a guide for where you're at in your career as a CTO, and how to stay close to your customers to make sure you're building the right things. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. I like your content. I was a big fan. I think I ran into you, what, like about over a year ago, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you you had shared in the Slack that we're part of um, the CTO maturity model. I want to mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that. How did you, what is it, and how did you come to make it? Just jumping right in. Jumping I want right to jump right in. Meat. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it, it's part of my journey. Um, so I don't know. Should I should I get into background yeah, a little for bit? Sure. Or I... Yeah, whatever you want. Okay. I'm just going to start at the beginning because okay. it, all, it, all, it all ties together. You know, obviously, maturity model. I mean, this was me kind of analyzing and assessing my own maturity as a CTO and trying to figure out what should I be doing, what should I be focusing on, uh, what are my priorities, and all that. But to go back to when I was a little boy, honestly, I've just been a hacker my whole life. I used to tear apart my old electronics, my old He-Man toys, and rip out the circuit boards and Frankenstein jab at it with batteries and stuff to see if I could make it twitch or whatever. And, uh, you know, my dad got one of the first home PCs. And of course, like I, once I found out I could play video games on it, I just started like tearing it apart and I was obsessed with it. And he took me to this computer shop with this like bucket of parts and was like, can you teach my son how to put this thing back together again so that he can (laughs) fix it if he breaks it again. And, and that was it. I've just been obsessed with computers my whole life, became a hacker in kind of like the early nineties, like dial up days phone freaking and just doing some, you know, nefarious things in the digital realm. And, um, and that's it. I've just been, I've been coding my whole life. I've been, uh, you know, just building things and innovating and just obsessed with like cyberpunk futurism, you know, technophile. But I, I became, I I became equally passionate about leadership really early in my career. I got my MBA in entrepreneurship pretty much right away because I wanted to work with startups and I just started mentoring and coaching and working with startup founders as a you know fractional CTO, basically, from like the get-go. So as I was going through this journey as a, as, as a technology leader, I just found like it's such a complicated role. There's so many different facets of it. It's not just like, oh, build a thing and ship it. It's like security and compliance and regulations and audits and processes and hiring and culture and you name it. And I just never, I always had a really hard time understanding, like at different stages of the company, what should I be focusing on? I can't focus on anything, everything. I can't prioritize everything. I tried and I burned out really hardcore. And so I went looking for a maturity model. I went looking for, okay, when you're a startup, these are the things that matter. When you're a growth stage, scale stage, enterprise, these are the things you should be focusing on. These are your KPIs. And I couldn't find anything. So I, I built one. And I kind of, um, I have like a deep product background. So I just took the persona uh, model and I just created these different kind of user personas for the CTO at different stages of growth. And yeah, what are the priorities? What are your KPIs? And mainly like, what are the 
things that hold you back from reaching the next level? What are your growth challenges? And then I just started shopping it around, you know, part of the, the seven CTOs elevate community. So there's a ton of great um, CTOs there that I, that, that, how we met, right? So through that webinar, surveying people, trying to understand, get their input. I did a bunch of webinars for like VC portfolio uh, CTOs and so on, and basically just gather data to try to put together some baseline. Of course, you know, you ask 10 people, you get 10 different answers, but, you know, consolidated on something that I felt pretty good about. And, and that's, that's where we are. And so then as a, as a coach, as an executive coach, I work with CTOs and help them assess, you know, what stage of company you're at, what persona do you fit? And then what are the gaps, right? Where, what do you need to let go of? What do you need to grow into and help them mature and to be the, the right size uh, CTO for their company? No, I love it. That's how we got here. <laughs> and the reason why I was so attracted to it is because uh, the first book I wrote, I was trying to do this essentially, mm -hmm. and I couldn't find a good way to do it. And so I instead shifted to just talking about their what they care about as far as like there's different types of of ctos there's the cto that really cares about product there's the cto that's like an mba and it's just kind of a cto really business strong and so instead of me going through this maturity model i instead just sort of listed out these different groupings of personality types that i saw that you know sort of transcended the specific maturity model, but was more of like where their interest and their heart was as a CTO. But then I saw this and I messaged you and I was like, hey, can we put it in the book <laughs> and give you a bunch of credit? And you're like, yep. And I'm like, let's have you on the podcast to talk about it. But um awesome. And and your your approach is 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 perfect too, by the way. I mean, there it really is important to know what type of CTO you are. Um, and that might fit you at a certain stage in the company. And I, I deal with this a lot where there's CTOs that are just, they're just the hacker. They love being in the startup stage. And when the company grows, it outgrows them. They're not happy anymore. They need to go back to a startup. And so what I do is I try to see, can I help them mature and grow? But there are definitely cases where I actually coach CTOs out of the company and back into a role that that really fits their persona. So you're, you know, they're both, you're, you're along you know, personality dimensions. I'm along sort of a time dimension. Uh, but they're both relevant for sure. Yeah. One of the things that I noticed was, and it, it was pretty rare, um, you know, definitely the 20% of the 80-20, but I would do these interviews and I could tell that this individual was like semi, you know, depressed about the fact yeah. that they don't get to write code anymore. Yeah. And there's people that say it like, oh, you know, I don't get to write code anymore. I know what it's like because I haven't been writing for the past three years after writing for 17 years. So I'm like, yeah, you miss it. But then you also find love in other things, right? But there's some people that miss it and like they just want to go back like so badly. And one of the um, things that I saw, a pattern that I saw is that some of these CTOs were super self-aware. And so what they ended up doing was they ended up creating what I have commonly seen as called like the office of the CTO. And that'll essentially be like a cutting edge six to eight person or whatever R&D team that's challenged with figuring out problems for the company, you know, if they're at that size, if that's luxury at a certain size that you can have a whole team dedicated to that. But they would then go over there and sort of have the VP of engineering type person fill the role of being the leader for the engineering and the product and everything like that. So I, I like tell people all the time now when I see that they're really upset about not being able to code anymore, I'm like, look, you can still be the CTO and code. You just have to make sure that you get the other things taken care of because that engineering org needs leadership. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, absolutely. That that CTO VPE split, it it just it it's part of the journey. It happens, or at least the conversation comes up with pretty much every company. And yeah, I see the same thing, right? That that kind of chief innovation officer, or that head of R and D, um, where the CTO goes off. The the challenge there is is I think just um, there needs to be enough there for them to really push the tip of the spear on in terms of innovation, so that they don't end up kind of going into production and like <laughs> getting their hands in all the pies and, and breaking things. But um, yeah, no, that's absolutely, that's the journey. And that's uh, the hardest thing that I find that CTOs let go of is how, how can I fall in love with headcount and budgeting and process and all of this meta business stuff as much as I loved coding? Because coding is loving, my love for coding is the thing that got me here, that got me into the role of the CTO. How do I fall in love with this business and this strategy stuff to the same degree as, as coding. And some people do it. And there's, there's ways, actually, there's like Pavlovian tricks, you know, reward systems, you know, you, you do the headcount forecast and you get the code for an hour kind of thing, but some folks, yeah, it's just not who they are. And they, and that self-awareness actually that you mentioned, that's actually the key, the, the, the number one kind of area that I focus on with every single client is develop self-awareness. That's what this is all about. But what's a model of anything? It's a it's a way to assess yourself, your company, dig deep, figure out who you are, and then you know make choices. How much does like the intersection that we're talking about is typically like serious life change? Like I imagine a lot of the people come to you because they're like burnt out or some some major issue, maybe with their. For me, like I've had issues with my family. I've had issues with all, all sorts of things, and those were all in hindsight, just opportunities to grow and make different decisions, right? But this buds up really closely. Like I find that a lot of the tech conversations, whether it be at conferences or podcasts, they focus on, you know, things like your maturity model or specific technologies or specific strategies to implement technologies or build versus buy. They focus on a lot of these conversations. But the whole personal development side of things, go to an extreme of like a Tony Robbins type deal or like, you know, a coaching concepts and all of that, that isn't typically like, that's the 20%. That's not talked as much, but I have found it to be equally, if not more important than the other thing. Like what, what do you, why do you think that is? Yeah. Um, I'll tell you why. So this kind of goes deep into the philosophy, but there's a, a pattern that I find most CTOs suffer with. I call it the hero mindset. We are these pinnacle problem solvers, right? We we thrive on swooping in and fixing everything, solving all these problems. And we just take a lot of burden on our shoulders. We're not also great at leadership. Like naturally, we don't leverage other people or trust other people or know how to communicate to other people as well as, you know, perhaps an entrepreneur CEO would. And so we just take a lot on our on our on our backs. And that that means we don't ask for help. We don't know how to ask for help. And so so that's it. And so we fall, we, we struggle underneath this burden until we burn out. That's what happened to me personally. So I was CTO of a company. Uh, I had a baby at home, uh, two, you know, second baby, basically. I had a baby. Then I decided to go join a startup, which, you know, whatever. <laughs> okay. In hindsight, um, had my second kid. And I swear to God, I was coming to work every day with puke on my shirt, same, you know, wearing the same clothes. I was completely frazzled, didn't sleep. I was irritable. I was a total mess. I was making mistakes in my code. I mean, I was really, I actually screwed up really bad and blew up our AWS and cost my company a lot of money. And 
I just realized like, I, I gotta, I gotta quit. I gotta get out of this. So I took a sabbatical. I actually spent like four months just hiking up in the mountains and meditating and doing a bunch of kind of soul searching. One thing is I came off the mountain with this principle that I'll never let work take precedence over my health or my family again. That's been my core principle ever since. But then that's how I kind of eased into this world of consulting. And I started doing fractional CTO, CTO coaching, um, and now, you know, primarily executive coaching across product and engineering. And, and, and so this is the principles that I coach my, you know, my clients is you, you need, you're a leader. You know, when, when you become a CTO, you're not measured in the hours you work. You're measured in those moments that you show up and you make the right decisions or when you can motivate or inspire people for them to work. You know, I have this kind of, you talk about like the 80-20 rule. It's like, you can be a 10X coder, but that's not a scalable system. That is 10 times maximum productivity of one individual. If you want to scale an organization, even if everybody else around you is only 80% or maybe even one-tenth of as good as you are, well, that's still a scalable system if you can lead them, you know, effectively. So this transition from the best coder and the best problem solver to, to an actual leader is really challenging and, you know, it takes a lot of work, a lot of effort. Um, some folks just hate it. <laughs> they don't want to do it. So they either quit, go back to being a startup or they hire a, a VP of engineering. Um, but even then it's, it's, you know, it's a cop out to say, oh, you go hire a VP of engineering and I'm going to go hide in this, you know, in this R and D cave, you still have to lead. You still have to communicate. You still have to, to connect the strategy down to the teams. You know, you can come up with this crazy vision of the future, but how do you actually get it down to the ground level where the teams are bought into it and, and can realize it. So those are the challenges. I used to say that I like hate repeating myself. I was like, you write code, it's there, it's there forever. As long as the memory is there, you just write it, you know, it's there. And then I was like, I hate repeating myself. And I'd go about my relationships. And when people would ask me things twice, you know, this is way earlier on in my life, I'd be really frustrated about it. Little did I know, like becoming a public speaker, <laughs> You know, uh -huh. like the same talk <laughs> that you give with like the same jokes, you know, you adjust it slightly, but like a yeah. hundred times. And so I think it's such an interesting like journey that you, that you go on in life. And I was curious because you've been doing this successfully, like coaching uh, CTOs, technology entrepreneurs for, for how many years now? How, how long have you been providing for your family and doing this thing full time? Full time. Yeah. About five years. That's success. Yeah. Dude, Those you got it. Oh yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm in it to win it for now <laughs> or from now on. Yeah. Yeah. That, that will, that will stick and that will scale and that will grow. And so, because, you know, we don't have all the people in the room with us right now to like have people, you know, ask questions and stuff. I was just curious, like when you look at your experience as a whole, or, or maybe what you're experiencing sort of like now when people come to you, what are, what is like the top one or two things that you hear over and over and over, and maybe we can give like dig into it a little bit because I'm sure there's people out there that are experiencing that if if you're seeing it a lot, and then maybe we can give them some value. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, burnout and hiring, main thing. Like, how do I? How do I? Basically, how do I scale my team? How do I scale myself? They're all interrelated. I'm burned out because I I don't have the team that I need. I can't hire the team. They're too expensive. I don't know how to sell the company well. Whatever it may be. Um, so there's a lot of challenges kind of wrapped up into that, but, you know, I, I do focus on kind of growth and scale stage companies. So those, those are those kind of challenges. There's different ones, very early stage and, and, and later stage, but those are the things I hear about the most is 
I can't develop or lead the team that I need. And therefore everything's on my shoulders. I can't delegate and I'm, I'm burned out. Those are the most common things that I hear for sure. And then do you have, do you find for me personally, learning how to fire and hire correctly? Like they go hand in hand because you got to, if you're not getting it done, that's typically for me, that's the sign I don't trust my team. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if I don't trust my team, I have to change my team. And that has really difficult conversations. And I don't know, I tend to be more introverted. And so the act of like having to let someone go was like, it was really hard for me to come up with like a mental framework for how I could do it. Um, but do you coach people on that? Is that something you find that a lot of people struggle with? Yeah, there's, there's two extremes to that. One is, and I think more common with CTOs, less with other execs, but um, CTOs tend to hold on to people too long because they take personal responsibility. I have not led this person the right way. It's, it's, it's my problem that this person is failing. The other extreme is, you know, this person isn't, isn't just, isn't performing. And so I'm going to let them go. But, you know, with the CTO specifically, yeah, again, they take a lot of that burden on themselves. They know they're not a great leader. And so they assume everything's their fault. So then it's all about expectations, right? So you, you give, if, you, if you're crystal clear, on what I need from the person and they still don't perform, then you you just have to make that that hard decision. I, I, I dealt with it myself, actually. I remember when, you know, when I was CTO, there was a couple guys on my team actually that were there from the very beginning. I mean, and I love these people. Like we had, you know, in the startup days, like we're, we're a band of brothers and sisters, you know, working on a common journey. And these couple guys just really were checked out weren't even showing up to work. Like we're totally getting nothing done. I was doing everything I could and held on to them way too long. And, you know, obviously in the startup stage, you're burning cash on these people. And it was the hardest thing I had to do was to let them go. But I, I, I read a book at the time, the hard thing about hard things. And, um, and that's kind of what that talks about is like, you can either hold on to this person because you don't want to hurt their feelings, or you can, you can make the whole company crumble right? So by keeping the wrong people, you actually hurt the whole company. And imagine you have, you know, hundred or a thousand people in your company, they all have to feed their families. They're all trying to, you know, accomplish things in their life. And by keeping this, you know, this baggage or this dead weight, or sometimes even toxic people, you're actually making the whole company suffer. So in that lens, I thought less about them and more about everybody else at the company and that just made it a lot easier because I looked at everyone else who was passionate and committed and pulling their weight and said, you know, I'm not going to hold on to you and make everybody else suffer. So, yes, I love that one. And because I'm a super nerd, I had to come up with like a million of them. <laughs> huh. no, there's, there's one other one I use that I really like. And it's like, if you, if like, we're talking about somebody that's not performing at the level of which the other people, it, it, the the level in which the market can perform because you have other people performing at that level, right? So it's like a common thing. There are enough people. I know I can go hire people at this level. This other person I'm currently dealing with is not close to that level and therefore they're dragging things down. So you can definitely use that perspective of like the, the greater good concept because they have to feed their families and uh, you have to do right by the, your teams as a leader. But there, there's also the one of... Um, allowing them to grow through this experience of being honest with them about how they're not good enough. And I know it's, that's a way harder. <laughs> it, yeah. It's hard, yeah. but it's true because I've done this a number of times um, because I would hate, I, I found my, 
my original instinct was to blame it on something else so that it wouldn't maybe land as hard with them um, and be like, oh, it's this or it's like budget stuff or whatever. I'd find other excuses to rather than being more direct with them. And then I found out that like if you're direct at them, there's definitely the emotional human response. But I've actually had people come back to me like three or four years later that are like, you know, you were the fifth person that fired me because I wasn't good enough. And that was the final wake up call. And then I, you know, became much better. And then I got this job and now I'm growing in my career. It's definitely like the rarer case, but uh, I think you kind of owe it to them because you didn't do a good enough job hiring them and vetting them. So it's definitely on you a little bit, but you owe it to them to let them know where they're currently at in the marketplace so that they can have the opportunity to be pissed off at you and just walk yeah. <laughs> away and kick something right or you know get upset but then realize that this is an opportunity where they can choose to uh, put more time into it yeah yeah if you're not you're robbing them of that chance to grow yeah and another book i'm a big fan of is radical candor mm. and so what you're talking about there is the ruinous empathy quadrant either by letting them go without being honest or or keeping them around you're you're in that ruinous empathy which means you're you're afraid to challenge them. You're afraid to give them that direct feedback because you care so much about them and their feelings that you actually allow them to fail. You know, it's like letting somebody walk up on stage with their fly down because you don't want to embarrass them and you let them fail in front of a, a huge audience, for example. But so, yeah, so radical candor is something that I, I weave into all my work and make everybody that I work with read, mainly because, you know, I am very far in that radical candor quadrant and I speak very openly and very directly. Um, because I, I care so much and honestly just, you know, don't have time or even the mindset to kind of be political about things. So first I just, I, you know, establish trust, let them know that I care, try to be as, you know, diplomatic as possible, but you gotta, you gotta take the feedback. That's a good trait of someone you're paying to help you grow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. How much time and energy are we wasting trying to protect our feelings? Let's just get in there, you know? Yeah. Um, did yeah. you did you ever think like you know back when you were in high school that you would be doing something like this? Interesting. Um, you know, I was a I was a Uber nerd myself. I mean, obviously, I was a hacker, coder, all kind of stuff, and I was also social. I was more so. I was a social nerd, and I actually had the nickname the Nerd Whisperer, which <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know. I'm not gonna. I don't know if it's a good or bad thing, but that's kind of what it's called. It's like I would just hang out with like the really nerdy guys and that was my crew like we'd play video games and dungeons and dragons and and all this stuff and and that's just those are my people but i was also kind of friendly and outgoing with everybody else as well and so they kind of gave me that you know like why are you hanging out with those nerds so that's me that's who i am and so yeah it was always leadership has just something very been very natural to me like i said i got my mba you know pretty much right out of college um at night school kind of working full time but engineering leadership, I, I always just found that I could get more done with a team than trying to do it myself. And so I, I decided I was a better leader really than I was a coder. And I loved leadership more than I loved coding. So it's always been a thing. And, and my leadership style has always been coaching. I've never really liked managing. I don't really like fiddling with people. I'm fiercely independent myself. And so I really wanted people to realize their potential and and, and be the best version of themselves they can be. And so coaching was just always something I did. 
Yes. I could tell that too when I when I first met you. And that's one of the reasons why I like having this podcast is because fiercely independent people are like doing their own thing. And so you have to have some sort of reason to come together and like because they're not just hanging out with each other 24 seven, they're all doing their own thing with their teams, <laughs> right? I know. It's a little lonely, you know? I know. I know. Yeah. I don't have as many friends as I'd like, but it's okay. But it's more rewarding to help people. That's what I've found. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I've never, I've also never, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur in my own right and, and running my own business, but I building product, building my own product. Like I never had that thing in me that was like, I've got this idea. I'm not an inventor in that way. Um, I'm more about helping people and helping teams realize their ideas. Really. I'm just not that kind of idea guy. And so it started with a consulting and with coaching and everything. And that's where I get my fulfillment is really working one-on-one with people and helping them realize the best version of themselves and then accomplish. And then I get just a ton of fulfillment from that. And then I get to work with like 15 different executives and I get to work on so many different things. That's another thing is I, I love variety and novelty and newness and, and innovation and all that. And so I get to work in so many different industries, so many different products, so many different customer bases. So I don't know if I, I, I don't know if I could go back to like one company where I kind of have the blinders on and I'm just like working on this one thing for five to 10 years. No, I don't know. I couldn't. I mean, yeah. after so like you know, three times a week, I'm like, I get to talk to like people putting spaceships in and then people designing data into DNA and then organic cloning of salmon. And it's like to get to, you know, jump in and research these things. It's like, it's what oh, I did with. Now my... you're going to make me want to start a podcast, that <laughs> dude. Awesome. Start a podcast. <laughs> start a podcast for sure. Yeah. yeah, dude. We're five years and f- over 500 episodes into this thing. Wow, it's crazy. That's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, no. I, to answer your question, I never thought that that I would be an executive coach. Um, and in fact, actually, it, I am still coming to terms with it as my identity. Like when somebody asks me what I do. For so long, it's been, you know, I'm an engineer, I'm a CTO, I'm a, I'm a tech guy. And it, it actually has been really hard for me to say I'm an executive coach. Because I don't know, it just, it's just, it, whatever, maybe it's a career change or whatever, but it, it, it is something that, um, I know that I'm still kind of coming to terms with. I know what it is for me, because I used to like look at that as silly stuff. Like in my earliest, youngest engineering self, I'd see the Tony Robbins and I would sort of like write that stuff off. And then, so then I would be like a little bit shy to be like, yeah, I do public speaking and stuff now. I would always just introduce myself as an engineer. And then now it's like, I guess I own a media company. It's funny company. you say it. So yeah. I used to do the, I, I would, before COVID, I would, I was doing the pot, uh, the conference circuit, right? I was speaking at conferences every year and stuff. And, um, and I got the nickname, the Tony Robbins of agile software developer. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'll take that as a compliment. That's an interesting little niche to put me in. But yeah, I was doing all these, these talks around agile first principles and, and, you know, feedback loops and effective product design, everything or user-centered design. And so uh, that's it. I'm an agile evangelist. I weave feedback loops and iterations and small bites and things into everything I do, including coaching. But, you know, that was an interesting moniker. I was like, Okay, I I guess I'll t- I'll take that. Sure, I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah. Well, you dude, the dude's helped how many millions of people, and he's yeah. Ma- I mean, he's for a- sure. I mean, I just you know I grew up in the eighties and nineties, and yeah, you're right. It's seeing him on TV and the infomercials and stuff was like, what is that? What's that guy doing? But helping people, right? What does your What does your wife think about all of this? 
she's, I mean, she's my number one fan. She's the reason I'm, I'm doing it. Um, when I quit my job, when I burned out, she was the sole breadwinner for at least, you know, I mean, again, I took a sabbatical, but then, you know, it took me a few months to ramp things up probably a year, year and a half before I was really making kind of like a full-time income. So yeah, I know she's been in my corner the whole time for sure. Dude, that's amazing. Yeah. That's like, uh, that's how you, you do a strong team. And then you said you have two kids now or? Yeah. Two nice. girls, two little girls. Nice dude. And they are my world. Oh, I've got one yeah. little girl, one little, <laughs> one little boy. And then I've got one on the way and we don't know what it is yeah. yet. So, which is another reason why I can't work nine to five anymore, or nine to five plus, you know, in the, in the startup world. No, I, I, I built this life to be flexible around my, my family. I pick up, I drop my kids off in the morning. I pick them up, you know, in the afternoon, I take them to the park, things like that. So, you know, I, I, I sacrifice, you know, a bit. I mean, obviously I could work more and I could grow and I could hire people and be bigger and all that. And then I'm like, yeah, but then I have more responsibility and I have to work more and I have to be responsive to people and off hours and, you know, no, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to do that. Yeah. You can definitely take on too much work. I mean, I think we've all done that, whether it's oh, yeah. within our own company or like if we're freelancing, you can take on too much work. And then it's like, why am I doing this? This sucks. <laughs> Yeah. The, yeah. the, the scarcity mindset versus the abundance mindset. That was hard for me as a consultant in that moment, in that mindset of scarcity, I will take every billable hour I can possibly get because it might go away feast or famine, but then transitioning to that mindset of abundance has been transformational for me. Actually, I, in my coaching career, the less I work, the more successful I am. And I've learned that now because the less I work, the more time I have to focus on my health, to be happy, to meditate, to let my brain like work on its own, <laughs> not be this close to something, but let my brain crank on things and make connections. And then I show up, you know, as a coach, I mean, it's, it's, it's a performance, you know? So when I show up for my clients, it's like, boom, it's on. And, uh, and I can only, I only have so much energy for that in a, in a day. And so I found that actually by shrinking the number of clients and number of hours I work, I show up so much better. My clients are happier. I get paid more. I get more referrals, all that kind of stuff. So, so do you have a wait list now? I do. Nice. How yeah. do people join that if they're interested in checking you out or learning more about that? Yeah. Well, so my website is fullcycleproduct.com. You can email me at eric, E-R-I-C at fullcycleproduct.com. Find me on LinkedIn probably find me through your your website through your podcast uh when yeah. you post this thing right yeah we'll put links in the show notes for sure yeah um, but yeah you know man i just think you're such a great person that I, if there's anything else Thank that you. we can do i know you have a you have a book right i think you have a free book on your website correct i do yeah yeah i have a book called build the right things okay um which you know is sort of just this this brain dump that I, I had a, a certain point in my career where I was doing this conference talk around um, user-centered design and, um, you know, yeah, so I have this free book and, and I will give it gladly to anyone who will read it because that's my evangelism there is, um, well, actually, you know, kind of brief story about why I wrote that. As a CTO and as an engineering leader, it's all about efficiency, efficiency of execution increasing velocity, decreasing waste, right? Increasing that stability of, of the sprints. And, um, and I got really good at it, right? Like there was, it was, it was a tight ship that I was running. And then we would release these features and, you know, nobody would use them or they wouldn't work and we'd have to rebuild them five times. 
or our product manager would tell us one thing and then change their mind and we wouldn't understand whatever. And I, I came to this, I had this epiphany that it doesn't matter how efficient you are. There's nothing more wasteful than working on the wrong things, on building the wrong things, working on the wrong problems. And so I, I actually became a product enthusiast, product evangelist, and, and discovered user-centered design, which is basically the, the agile equivalent of, of product development, where it's all about super tight feedback loops with customers. Every step of the way, whether it's you know talking about a problem, talking about a concept, early wireframes, prototypes, you know, every step of the way, getting feedback from customers. And so in the agile development world, it's the same thing, right? We want to iterate tightly and get feedback and make sure that we're, you know, working along the right direction. I applied those same principles over in the product world. And again, became this evangelist going to all these conferences, talking to all these, these startup founders and everyone being like, stop just building the shit that's in your head. <laughs> I hope I can curse by the way, I you know, I, Stop building the things that are in your head. Stop building the product that you think people want and then going out and trying to sell it to people. Talk to your customers, figure out what their needs are, and then co-create the solution with them, right? And engage them in the process every step of the way. And so I'd, I'd have these conversations and people would say, you know, well, well, you know, my customers won't talk to me. And I said, well, then it's the wrong problem. If it's really a big enough problem, they're going to give you their time because you're building them a solution. Uh, anyway, I'm getting I'm getting hyped no, now because this, this is this is my thing. Notes. When I'm <laughs> right, but then but so then anyway, I you know it came out in, in this conference talk and all these things, and ultimately became the book. And so basically, every company or every client that I work with, I say, okay, it's like a filter. Go read the book and let's have a conversation about it. And if they're jazzed and they're like, yes, that's it, that's what we need. That's what we, okay. I know we're going to work well together. If they come back and they start challenging me and they start talking about how. Okay, so this is the this is the anecdote. Everyone talks to me about Steve Jobs. Every single one. Every time I get up, I even have a backup slide in the in the in the deck. Well, what about if 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 Steve Jobs, uh, you know, asked everyone what they wanted about he wouldn't have built the iPhone, or Henry Ford. You know, Henry Ford has this famous quote, which is misrepresented. But if I ask people what they wanted, they would ask for a faster horse. Have you heard that one? Oh yeah, I've heard all of it. Yep. Right. It's bullshit. Yeah. He, Henry Ford built the car, not because people wanted a faster horse. It's because there was too much horse poop in the streets of New York. That's why he went and figured out what's the problem. Here's the solution to it. It's not that, that, you know, that he didn't talk to people. And Steve Jobs said the same thing. He actually, his quote, and I have this, this backup slide that I always bring out. It's like something like if I, if I, like you have to get close, so close to your customers that you can anticipate what they need before they do. That's a different thing. That's different from I'm just going to build, I'm a miracle worker and I'm going to build this thing that's in my head. It's get super close to your customers, understand in great detail what their problems are, and then the right solution will come to you. All right. So that's that's where that book kind of came no, from. I, dude, I got goosebumps right now. And his customer oh, for the iPod was his daughter, right? That's he he made it for her because he saw her right? going around with her her compact disc or the tapes or whatever. But um, yeah, it was for, I think Lisa's her name, but there's a documentary on it and the theme, what, whether that documentary was right or wrong is not for me to judge, but in the documentary, the inspiration for making that was for his daughter. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, no. It's, so it's he was close to this stuff. customer. He saw his daughter. She was into the music. <laughs> she had these problems. And he was like, I'm going to build something you can put like so many songs on. And then you don't have to carry around. You know, we used to carry around these CD sleeves, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know. Oh, yeah. Get that skip protection on there because it's going to. 100%. Yes. Yeah. But you're exactly right. It does get mangled this idea that he was sitting around on a throne and was like what do the people need next no you can watch people struggle with the cases of cds or you can watch people you know interact with like have difficulty making like taking their music with them and you can say everybody has a problem with this there's everybody loves music like i could make a way to solve their problem better than them lugging around all their music physical disc with them exactly and and do you think that they went and they built the first iPhone and didn't test it along the way that they just miraculously came up with this perfect interface and just released it on the world. Hell no. no. You imagine how much, how much usability testing and things that they did with it. Of course they iterated on it with, with, with real users and customers. So, so that's it is I, I just basically evangelize the same agile principles that we use in software development in, in new product discovery and development as well. Um, and so that's why I was saying as a coach, you know, I came up through this sort of CTO coaching, but I am equally as passionate about product CPO coaching as well for this very reason, mainly kind of selfishly or through the lens of the CTO is like, you need to serve us better. You need to serve the CTOs better. Give us more context, more understanding of the problem and like iterate on these solutions, go validate an idea before you make my engineering team spend a bunch of time building it. And then you scrap it. Right. But, you know, you can never really throw anything away. You have to modify it and mangle it until it turns into this Frankenstein monster that you then have to maintain. And now you're on call fixing broken legacy code that's been fixed 20 different times because you didn't figure out what the customer actually needed. <laughs> you're bringing up too much pain of my past. There's, you you, know, know, you make the too. mistake so me many too. times and you're just like, I'm glad I figured out how to do it right. Let's like. You know, for me, it was a little backwards because I stumbled into it by accident doing it right the first time because I was hanging mm -hmm. out at my parents' real estate agency and like I was building little widgets and tools to help the realtors like do their do their task. And then that ended up becoming a suite of tools and it became a business and getting bought and, and so on. But the origin of it was I'm sitting around these people who are having these problems and I'm building these little solutions because I had those skills. Then I make, you know, money and I go, oh, what's the next, what's my next great idea? And then like, I screw up like multiple times and then I get back and then I hear someone say this advice about like staying really close to the customer. And I thought, I was like, that's why it worked for me the first time. Now I need to do that as like my permanent strategy. Yeah. So the, the core or one of the first core concepts of the book is I say, find your tribe. So forget about the product, focus on the people that you want to help. Right. It's, I don't know, doctors, teachers, moms, you know, whatever it is, pick a, pick a group of people that you care so deeply about and get super, super close to them. And they'll tell you their problems. You'll see the, there's problems abound. There's no shortage of really big problems to solve. You don't need to go off and say, oh, it's this for that. Or I got some crazy new idea that's out there. No, get close to people and figure out you know, the workflow, the things that are, that, that aren't working for them, the, the, the one size fits all, you know, big solutions that don't really apply in their in niche set of circumstances and then build something custom for them. And, you know, more people like them are going to want to use it. Yes. And you can save yourself a lot of pain if you ask them if they'll pay for it first. Because <laughs> some yeah. problems, oh, absolutely. some problems people want solved and they complain about, but they're not willing to pay for it. Yeah. 
that's a hard lesson. Yeah. So I actually, part of the, part of the discovery kind of getting into the process a little bit, um, we talk about, you know, really first is like, how much time and energy are you spending today to solve this problem? Right. What products are you using? How many hours a week does it take? Whatever. And then you kind of get that number as like an anchor and you say, okay, how much would you be willing to pay to make this problem go away? If you had a magic wand and you can just solve this problem immediately, what would that number be? And that's your like perfect solution. Like if you literally had a magic wand, that's how much you could charge. And then as you build the product, you kind of start with like, all right, we're solving like 50% of the problem or we're cutting the time by X percent. You can kind of work your way up to that optimal uh, solution. So that's how we do not only pricing, but even prioritizing which problems to solve. You get in there, you get to know people, you kind of lay out, There's these are all the different problems that you're dealing with, kind of run through this exercise, and then you can prioritize, okay, these are the most critical pain points, the ones that are causing them the most frustration, the most time, the most money, the most energy, and those are the things that you go after. So there's your product right there. You don't need to search for product market fit. It's staring you in the face. Now just go build a solution for it. Yeah. And now your company name makes sense to me full cycle, because at first I thought there's different types of, um, there's different types of coaches, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you can coach people through, you know, hiring and firing and stuff and not have a good understanding of, uh, like business models and maybe like some of these things. And what I was reading for you, cause you have these two case studies on your site. And so I was reading them and I was like, oh, wow, man, like Eric does, he's got like a, a, a wide breadth of, of, of understanding and he can help from everything from like the relationships with your, you know, C-suite executives or co-founders or whatever. He can help with that all the way down to like your actual time. Met. You've got like, I don't know. I guess I'm just too big of a fan of you right now. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> you've got like oh, this. Thank you. You're unique. Likewise. You've got these skills. Like you'll know how to actually tactically do these things. Like here's how mm -hmm. you analyze what problems to solve, or here's how you manage your time. But you can also help with the relationship side of things. You've just got you've got a lot of different ways that you can um, help people, which makes it easy for me to like, you know, connect people with you or, or refer you or recommend you because. Um, well, you're also in my network and, you know, Etienne and Etienne's like said amazing things about you. So he, he built you up huge before I even met you. So, oh, great. yeah. Yeah. No, I, you know, I, it, um, obviously it comes with a lot of experience, but, um, you know, like I said, I've, I've always learned that if you can connect with the people, if you can motivate, inspire people, get them connected to a vision and goals and those sorts of things. And then let them kind of figure out the details, right? I've, I've always been kind of a, the big picture guy, and I can I'm a systems thinker, um, and I, I trust other people to you know to figure out the implementation. But um, but you know it's funny you say like all this, this wide breadth of experience, which is as a consultant, man, I was doing I was doing everything. A customer or your client would come to me and be like, "What can you do?" And I said, "Well, you know, I can do this and this and this and this and this. I can help with your product, with your strategy, with your roadmap, with your." With your architecture, with your security, with your software development practice, all this and that, and they just be like, "You need to focus, man." <laughs> it actually took me a long time. Um, I kind of joke; it was like I had my second career, and then I had five different careers in five years. And so, actually, converging on executive coaching was really hard for me to do because I actually had to let go of a lot of things that I was really passionate about, and um, and and really, you know, it. it it took a lot. Of, it took a lot of thought and and consideration. But for me, it's more about one is I just decided I really want to connect with people more than anything, and two, 
it's where the leverage is. It's where I get the most leverage in the organization. So as like an agile coach, for example, I would get deployed into these software development teams, you know, help them mature, become more efficient, blah, blah, blah. And eventually it comes to the point where they'd be like, you know, you're trying to squeeze blood from a stone, man. You know, like, why are we under all this pressure to perform better when leadership is doesn't have their heads on straight or they're not aligned or we're getting garbage from from product or we're getting all these fires that we have to fight in production because we never got to you know develop architecture and we're just pushing features all the time and you know that sort of thing which i'm sure you're also <laughs> yeah. i might be <laughs> bringing back some trauma you know for you and your listeners here but uh but that's where i found it. i was like it's it's all about leadership first so i would always move up into the c-suite in general and once I got them aligned, I found everything else would start to fall into place. And so that was the thing where I realized, you know, where I can make the most impact across the most number of companies was, was working in the C-suite. Why is it in life that these simple things, they're really, you don't have to have PhDs in them to understand things like, I'll make it really human for a second. Like mm. to lose weight, you have to burn more calories and you take in, right? <laughs> like, it, right. It, you know, you have to be active or you for, you know, you could take it a hundred different ways. But the, the, the thing I'm curious to hear you explain to me is why is it that these simple things, uh, relationships with your coworkers or whatever it may be, uh, are so hard? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. And there's obviously different facets to it. It's it's obviously deeply psychological. When when I when I when I have an epiphany or when my client has an epiphany and they tell me how great whatever it was, I always say like, I'm just telling you what's right in front of your face. I'm telling you what's right in front of your face and you just couldn't see it. So these challenges are are, are all often staring us in the face. We're just I don't know making excuses. Maybe we can't. We're so busy that we can't see the forest for the trees. There's probably a lot of emotion tied into it and hurt and, 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 you know, fear of judgment and things like that. It, it's all, it's all in psychology, I guess, at the end of the day. Um, I, it's not a really pointed answer. Right. But, yeah. um, I like actually the answers for the universe. I didn't like it is, Yeah. 42. <laughs> there it is. There's your answer. 42. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the life, the universe and everything, man. Um, yeah. And that's, and that's really, I think what I, what I do as a coach is, I work with folks that are incredibly, incredibly talented and successful at building things, but they just can't, the, the people side of things is where they really struggle. They don't know how to communicate. They don't know how to, how to lead, motivate. They don't know how it, you know, to, to reflect and, and work on themselves. And I'll call back to what you said before. It's all about self-awareness. So that's the first thing. And the main thing that I focus on is develop a sense of self-awareness, which is really the agile development principle applied to yourself. It's the daily retro. When I meditate, I meditate every morning. It's my daily retro. It's stepping back, pulling myself out of the fray, observing myself and saying, how am I doing? How am I feeling? What's working for me? What's not working? What habits are holding me back? Obviously, I think about diet and exercise and sleep and things like that a lot, right? So for me, meditation is my daily retrospective. And then I actually have an explicit weekly sprint that I do for myself and for all my clients, where there is a, a weekly retro on Friday that is digging into yourself. And a lot of it ties to habits. What's What habits are, are giving me results? What habits are holding me back? Um, and then I help them you know, break and reform those habits. 
Well, that's amazing because like life is long and <laughs> mm -hmm. once you figure out and you get some small wins with, uh, with like a coach, then you can just build up that discipline and, you know, run with it. I used, you know, various different relationships in my life as coaching. Um, and it, I definitely could have cut off a decade of pain if I would have just gotten an executive coach at the beginning. I know, I know everyone should. And, and, you know, again, back to what you said, I think at the top is it's becoming much more common. Certainly the CEOs, I think have been using executive coaches for quite a long time. I mean, that's well-established, but these other roles, you know, CTO, CPO, et cetera, are starting to see the value as well. And, you know, usually it's like, I meet with a CTO and have a conversation and they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, I do need help. And that's really what it comes down to is, is understanding that, the world is really not on your shoulders. There's people around you who who want to help you, who can help you, and you just got to learn how to how to ask for it and then and then leverage it. Do you find that age helps a lot with that? People getting older and just getting tired of repeating the same mistakes. <laughs> um, hmm. I don't what, know. What's the I, average age of your client? Yeah, uh, mid thirties. Yeah, you know, so I'm 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 in my early forties, and and I'm kind of like a, a few chapters ahead, yeah. right? And so that helps me kind of resonate well. Is like, hey, I was I was you not too long ago. I, I would say that there, I do have some much younger, like co-founder or founder type uh, clients that still have a lot to prove, and that's something that I see when it comes with age is you you have less to prove to others anyway. So I think that's yeah, there, there probably is an age component or an experience component to being willing to, to say, Hey, I'm not perfect. Uh, and I need help. Yeah. Especially as you described that you're right. When I was in my twenties, like my world was a lot bigger in the sense that like, now it's my family. Like it's so cut and dry, the most important thing in the world to me. And they all go to sleep in my house with me every night. Right. So it's like, those are the thing. And then everything else is sort of secondary to, to that. Um, and I, you don't have that in your twenties. You have like your friends and your groups and everything. And yeah, no, dude, this is great. I want to be respectful of your time. I know you have a, a tight schedule. We have a few minutes here to wrap up anything other than having people go to your website, fullcycleproduct.com. Is that correct? And we'll put the links in the notes. They can get on your wait list or contact you, read your book that you have for free on your website to see if they might be a good candidate to working with you. Cause I know just off our conversation that you don't accept everybody. <laughs> right? You're going to accept the right people that are ready for it. Um, anything else we can push, push out there into the world that could help you? Um, take care of yourself, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think the, 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 the message that I would probably leave with everyone is, uh, we're all super stressed out. We're all burned out in our own way, you know, COVID and everything that's going on in the world, obviously adding a lot more stress and pressure to us. And um, yeah, make some space for yourself, make some space for your family and, and, and just realize that by working less, you can actually achieve more if you take care of yourself. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.